This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, Planning Committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Medical Therapy for Obesity. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. In antiquity, obesity was not always considered a problem. In the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, for example, when many struggled with food scarcity, obesity was considered a sign of wealth and increasing the average population BMI when it was underweight was a sign of national prosperity. When weight increased, so did height, and populations finally began to reach their genetic longitudinal potential. But weight gains soon outstripped height, and in the year 2000 marks the turning point when the number of adults who are overweight has surpassed the number who are underweight for the first time in history. The WHO declared obesity a global epidemic in 1997, and contrary to popular belief, obesity is not just a problem of socioeconomic wealth. Industrial nations like Mexico and Thailand are some of the hardest hit countries. And locally in the United States, poverty is a huge risk factor for obesity. As obesity rates have increased, so has the popularity of weight loss medications. One of the first weight loss medications was actually thyroid replacement, prescribed in the 1920s to youth thyroid individuals for its metabolic properties. Then came meds like dinitrophenol, amphetamines, diuretics, and laxatives, and then famous, famously in the 90s, Fenfen, which is actually infamous for its negative cardiac effects. Unfortunately, these pharmaceuticals only produce temporary results with very serious side effects, sometimes even fatal. But that may be changing. The past decade, we've seen several new medications receive FDA approval for weight loss, and some of them have even known cardiac benefits. So to give us the updates on the currently approved medical treatment options for obesity is one of Ohio State University's experts, 
Dr. Benjamin O'Donnell specializes in treating patients with obesity and is an associate professor of endocrinology. Ben, thanks for joining us today on MedNet. Thanks, Jingjing. Now, um, you know, some, some people are arguing that obesity is becoming over-medicalized and weight loss medications are just another part of the multi-billion dollar weight loss industry. Do you think that's true or, or is obesity as big of a problem as, as it's being shown to be? I think we'll talk about some of those impacts, uh, but certainly over the time, you know, as you reviewed into the, the 90s until now, as the rates of obesity have really skyrocketed, uh, there's about a 10-year delay, but there is a, a, a significant increase in rates of uh, diabetes, per se, uh, that parallel, really, the increase in weight. So I do think there is uh, health outcomes that are being affected by this increase in obesity. Thanks, Ben. Now, I just want to admit that I'm extremely excited to hear about your presentation because as a primary care doctor myself, I am seeing more and more patients asking about weight loss medications every day. But some housekeeping before we dive in. If you're interested in finding our entire collection of 120 programs, please check out our website at ccme.osu.edu. We have several other obesity-related webcasts in our archive, including one on bariatric surgery and one on how to talk about obesity in a destigmatized way. So be sure to check those out. You can also listen to our audio-only version of our program via podcast. Look for MedNet 21 CME on your podcast player. Now I'll turn things back over to Dr. O'Donnell to teach us about the medical management of obesity. Ben? Thanks, Jing Jing. All right, so these are the objectives for my talk today. Uh, we're gonna start out with really defining uh, obesity, so uh, just to, to set the, the groundwork there. And we'll go into a little bit more about the impacts of obesity on health, uh, and then some cost when it comes to healthcare cost. Uh, after that, talk about uh, the control of energy homeostasis, or really how the body uh, manages weight, maintains weight. Uh, we'll talk about a practical, uh, hopefully useful approach to things like diet and exercise or lifestyle changes. Uh, spend a lot of time talking about the medications uh, and then a couple of uh, points on the FDA approved and then uh, one that is still an investigational but endoscopic therapies that are available uh, beyond medications. All right, so as I was mentioning, uh, there are really two different categories when we're talking about uh, an increased weight, uh, but uh, BMI is the measure that we use uh, to place people, or at least to assess their weight uh, based on these different categories. So uh, BMI is that measure of weight as it relates to a person's height. Uh, a normal weight would be a BMI in the range of 18 and a half up to about 25. Uh, so we start to consider overweight uh, starting at 25 up to a BMI of 30. Uh, there are different classes of obesity, so class one, class two, class three, uh, and that is great. So the different gradations there are uh, categories of, of five based on their BMI. Uh, class three obesity used to be referred to uh, by different names, morbid obesity, uh, for example. Uh, generally, it's better to use these different classes as you uh, define obesity and, and try to talk about these things with your patients to take it out of a uh, subjective realm and more into an objective uh, statement. So an important point though, in Asian populations, and this would also relate to say uh, Alaskan natives or Native Americans, uh, the BMI cutoffs are actually lower. Uh, and this has been studied based on how are those different health outcomes affected by weight. Uh, so a BMI of 23 up to 25 is considered overweight. And then a BMI of greater than 25 uh, is where obesity begins for these populations. Um, something also important to 
to, to realize as you're discussing these things with patients is that the severity of obesity doesn't necessarily uh, coincide with that class uh, definition. So class three obesity doesn't necessarily say this is uh, truly more severe than class two or class one. It really comes down to that individual sitting there uh, in clinic with you. So looking at the comorbid conditions that can be affected by this, including diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, sleep apnea, PCOS. Uh, an important one I haven't listed here, but fatty liver disease is yet another uh, that lends uh, a level of severity. So this would be something to probably more appropriately def define obesity um, severity for that individual. We'll talk about how that impacts um, other things later on, um, like medication prescriptions. So again, to review, uh, and, and Jing Jing brought this up as a uh, over the last several decades, there's been an increase in the prevalence of obesity. Uh, this, would, this is a map from the CDC from 2017. Uh, and as you can see here, there, there are quite a few colors represented on this map. Um, historically, if we went back to 1990, there would not be a state on this map with uh, an obesity prevalence of greater than 20%. And so 20% is now hardly represented in this, uh, this current uh, colorful diagram. Uh, over the last five years though, uh, that prevalence of obesity has increased. So our current estimates, and this again comes from the, the CDC, uh, is that 40, roughly 42% of adults uh, within the United States uh, fall into that obese category. Uh, and this has a large impact on our medical uh, cost in the United States. Uh, this number is somewhat staggering. So $173 billion were spent in 2019 uh, due to the cost of obesity. Um, for reference, uh, I looked this up just recently, uh, a similar uh, cost was assigned to uh, Hurricane Katrina. So all of the damage that was caused by that hurricane uh, totaled up to $170 billion. So if you imagine uh, some type of event like that in the United States occurring on an annual basis, um, that's essentially what obesity is costing us in terms of healthcare dollars. Um, and again, listed here, the per capita cost is higher. So as a person, uh, becomes uh, or falls into these obese categories, uh, they're going to end up spending more on healthcare uh, as an individual. So the rates of obesity uh, do vary based on ethnicity uh, and race uh, as well. So what I have here are again uh, estimates of obesity uh, as it opposed or as it applies to the black population in the United States. Uh, if you remember back to the other slide, uh, there were none, or, I'm sorry, very few states that had this greater than 35% prevalence. Uh, so when you're looking at the black population, uh, there's quite a bit more obesity, uh, and that is in a larger swath of the country. So also, as mentioned, there are differences uh, when it comes to socioeconomic influences. So this graph uh, is showing the difference uh, when it comes to income levels. So the dark blue line uh, is the highest income level uh, green is in the middle, and then the lighter blue line, uh, lower income levels. And so it's uh, separated here by men and women. Um, the impact seems to be greater for women than men uh, as we look at this. Uh, so women uh, who have a higher uh, economic standing tend to have lower BMI. Uh, that doesn't quite hold up the same, uh, although it's, it's marginally there uh, in the black population. Uh, in men, it's kind of an interesting phenomenon. There isn't quite a, uh, as much of a difference uh, on those different economic uh, scales. Uh, as you can see, actually, in the black and uh, Mexican-American populations, there's actually a higher BMI 
at those higher uh, income levels, somewhat uh, probably related to economic status uh, and also the, the, the types of occupations uh, that those lower economic um, categories tend to have. Uh, so then we're also looking at education status, so the education level attained by both men and women. And again, there is a, a more pronounced effect here with women, where the higher education level they attain, uh, the less prevalent obesity is. Uh, men are somewhat of a mixed bag here. Again, uh, you could almost say it's uh, non-significant across the board. Um, so in general, though, looking at this, I think it's important to take home uh, two points. So lower uh, education attainment or attainment of uh, lower education status, and then uh, those lower socioeconomic uh, income levels uh, do lead to greater rates of obesity. All right, so to discuss uh, physiology and then some pathophysiology when it comes to uh, weight management. Uh, again, patients come in uh, and they state things like, well, I need food to survive. I need to live. Uh, quitting smoking or quitting drinking is much easier because you don't need those things, which is absolutely true. Um, so it's a difficult place to start with uh, sometimes to say to people who uh, for a multitude of reasons, food is, is an essential part of life and it may be a coping mechanism. Uh, it's definitely something we all use for um, celebrations and, and gatherings and things like that. But uh, realizing that moderation, uh, we're not talking about absolute uh, um, you know, refusal of food, those kind of things. But what we're talking about is a gradual uh, moderation of diet to lead to weight loss. Um, over time, Caloric restriction will actually lead to a decreased metabolic rate, uh, and metabolic rate is somewhat defined by uh, just the mass uh, of the person. So if there's less of the person, there'll be less caloric need over time. So that's where people tend to plateau in weight. Uh, but there's also some mechanisms within the body uh, that lead to lower metabolic rate, and if they return to their previous diet, they're going to regain weight, um, and somewhat more noticeably after these attempts at weight loss. Um, an interesting thing also occurs. So overfeeding leads to a temporary increase in metabolic rate. So this has been studied both in rats and in humans, where if you overeat, uh, the metabolic rate responds. Uh, and if it's an unrestricted, so in, in a research uh, setting, that person actually will return to a, a, their prior weight um, if it's just a temporary uh, overfeeding. So the thing to take home, the body defends whatever that set point is for them. So um, over time, if they, if they gradually are inputting more calories and gaining weight over time, the body tends to defend that. But uh, as a person is able to maintain a weight, uh, the body will defend that as well, even with a, a weight gain uh, or a mild weight loss. All right, so where appetite and energy is controlled is, is really in our very central part of the central nervous system, so in the hypothalamus. Um, what I have designated here POMC and then NPYAGRP. These are meant to be two different neurons uh, that are located in the hypothalamus. So POMC, uh, and the color here uh, was meant to be red, it looks more orange, but uh, what that's meant to do is to indicate that this is the, the neuron that helps us to decrease eating. So it's meant to decrease appetite. And NPYAGRP, uh, that green nucleus, that's meant to be the, um, the food-seeking or increasing uh, the eating um, center of the brain. So they, they generally work in balance. Uh, and one of the things that we try to do with some of the medications is to tip that balance more towards the decreased appetite um, uh, function. So a lot of the medications have uh, focused on stimulating that POMC side 
um, of, of this uh, central circuitry. Uh, they do cross talk back and forth, so it's a lot more complex than this, this drawing is, is indicating uh, because there is some inhibition from NPY on POMC and, and so on and so forth. So uh, the body has a way to kind of get around some of these uh, single hit things to reduce appetite. And again, uh, so that central nervous system is kind of our control center for long-term, uh, so big picture appetite and body weight control. There are some more short-term uh, inputs that help to reduce appetite. And again, this is kind of functional uh, things that would make sense. So as, uh, as we eat, uh, let's say, so if you consume carbohydrates, insulin and GLP-1 are increased, and so those have a negative feedback on appetite. Uh, things like CCK, which is uh, produced in response to stretching in the gut, and PYY uh, at lower parts of the, the intestine are produced as well, and those feed back to the central nervous system as signals that uh, you've been eating, and so it's time to reduce uh, feeding behavior. So the GLP-1, CCK, PYY, and insulin to a certain degree um, all have an impact on uh, decreasing appetite. Leptin has been probably the best studied hormone, and that is produced by adipose tissue. Uh, and it's really produced uh, in, uh, in accordance to how much adipose tissue a person has. So greater adiposity leads to higher leptin levels, and leptin has been shown uh, to stimulate that POMC neuron and decrease appetite. Interestingly though, so clearly if somebody has uh, a lot of adipose tissue and they have high levels of leptin, uh, that doesn't automatically lead to weight loss. So there are things uh, we're all well aware of, say, insulin resistance. There's also this phenomenon of leptin resistance where there's not as much of a signal um, from those higher levels of leptin to help reduce appetite. And I mentioned a couple other things here. So gut bacteria and inflammation. Um, gut bacteria is an interesting uh, area of research going on right now. Uh, there's been studies showing differential uh, gut flora in people who are lean versus in that obese category. Uh, and, and somewhat to say the difference in those flora uh, lead to different signals. So some bacteria are able to produce these short-chain fatty acids which help to reduce appetite or have been shown to reduce appetite, uh, whereas other folks, if they don't have that same flora, will not have that same benefit. Um, now, gut flora also respond to the food that is uh, being fed to them, so what the people eat is reflected by their flora as well. So this is not a, a, uh, a perfect A to B uh, line of treatment, but it's an interesting uh, mode of treatment or at least an area of research. Uh, so inflammation, and, and this is, I, I kind of put this as just a bullet point because inflammation as we have kind of clearly become aware, especially with something like COVID where it leads to uh, pronounced inflammation. People who have uh, obesity have a pro-inflammatory state already. And so probably some of that inflammation from the adiposity or, or obesity uh, is leading to dysregulation of, of a lot of these um, feedback signals. Uh, and that's been one of the postulates that leptin resistance is related to uh, this kind of systemic inflammation. All right. So to spend some time talking about, and again, I, I mentioned earlier, so diet and exercise, or if you want to talk about lifestyle changes, really when we're talking about weight loss, long-term or management of obesity, lifestyle changes are, are first and foremost uh, the things that are going to lead to that change in weight over time. Uh, but generally, as, as people approach this, they are going to benefit most from a multimodality uh, therapy approach. So I list things here, dietary, uh, exercise or activity increases. Uh, some people need help in terms of uh, behavioral therapy. So I mentioned earlier, there are differential responses to food or using food for coping, 
Uh, and those are things that are not necessarily addressed by a medication or uh, clearly just exercising more. So uh, some people do need to seek out more specialized uh, treatment for that. Um, combination therapy is clearly better than just doing one thing by itself. And then addition of things like pharmacotherapy uh, to help manage appetite and some of the endoscopic therapies, which are a little bit more intense. And then at the, the very bottom there, the most intense treatment, which would be surgery. So starting with nutrition, uh, these are kind of general statements, so they don't fit 100% of the time because some people, uh, a calorie deficit, uh, let's say in the range of 1,000 or, or, or more calories per day is actually going to be uh, too much for them and they can end up with too much appetite and detrimental effects because of that. So uh, an in general uh, use of a, a calorie goal though for what's listed here, um, a thing to know, men generally need more calories than women, and some of that has to do with uh, just kind of general body sizes, but also men have more lean muscle, um, so they tend to have more uh, metabolic need based on that muscle mass. Um, so a general target somewhere in the 1,500 to 1,800 kilocalories per day. Uh, for women, slightly less than that, 1,200 to 1,500 is a good starting point. Um, one way to do this, though, separately than just kind of pick a, a number, uh, is to have somebody start to, to do a food journal or, or track their food in a, an app, and, and there are a multitude of those available these days, uh, and then have them come back and kind of report to you. Okay, well, how many calories are you consuming each day? And then you can use this, this formula here of the 500 calorie deficit, uh, and that's a per day deficit, and what that should equal out at the end of the week uh, should be about one pound of weight. So 3,500 calories equals one pound, so 500 calories lost each day uh, is the math that they should be following. Um, a lot of the apps right now will ask them to input uh, the weight that they hope to achieve and the amount of time, and it'll calculate that difference for them and give them a, a target. So uh, introducing an app can be an easy uh, uh, thing for a patient to institute on their own. Um, another thing that's important, and I get asked about this a lot, there is no one most effective diet. This has been studied uh, basically over and over. Um, things like uh, South Beach or Atkins diet is a low carb or a keto is a very low carb diet. It can be beneficial for certain people, but it really only happens, or I'm sorry, it only really leads to uh, uh, more weight loss in the first six months. And when a person gets out to about a year, uh, there's no real difference between any approach. And really what it comes down to is they need to be able to maintain a lower calorie diet while also maintaining uh, a balance of nutrients in their diet. So typically, uh, working with that patient on what they like to eat. So uh, working with their palate is the most uh, effective way. Uh, and again, just having them keep some type of journal. Um, an unhealthy amount of calories, about 800 or lower, is going to lead to uh, just loss of more muscle mass than uh, what is beneficial in terms of fat mass loss. And so if you're losing muscle mass, it's going to have a, a pronounced uh, decrease in the person's resting metabolic rate, and that's where it makes it much easier for that person to regain weight. So uh, staying away from any diet that's less than 800 calories is important. And then based on uh, our national guidelines here for uh, meaningful weight loss, the initial goal really uh, should be about 10% decrease in weight, and that's been shown uh, to really have beneficial effects when it comes to blood pressure, uh, cholesterol, uh, diabetes risk, and those things. So. Counseling patients on activity, and I'm using the word activity here intentionally. Uh, so uh, trying to stay away from using the term exercise uh, because a lot of people, they see that as work if they're being told they have to exercise. Uh, but again, working with them, figuring out exactly what they like to do for activity, and this can be something uh, as simple as yard work in, in the right seasons or 
uh, if they like uh, team sports, uh, classes, things like that. Um, something that's generally widely accessible is walking, and so what we try to counsel patients on is to complete 150 minutes per week of moderate intensity activity. And so what you can see on this slide, all the things that are listed under moderate intensity, including walking. And so if they have a way to measure how far they go and how fast they're doing it, a 15 to 20 minute mile uh, walking for about a half an hour each day will help them achieve that 150 minutes uh, by the end of a week. Uh, and they'd actually exceed that if they can do that for half an hour each day. Not every person's gonna be able to do this, and so you do have to kind of counsel them to start where they're at. And as they build up their, their stamina and more muscle uh, strength over time, they'll be able to achieve more. So I do try to tell people this is our goal, but it's an aspirational goal. I'm not asking them to go out and do 150 minutes that following week. Um, the other thing about activity, uh, it does come with calorie expenditure. So I think all of us have probably experienced this at one point where you go out and you do a lot of activity, uh, whether it's yard work or you take a long bike ride or, or a run, uh, come home and you are famished. And so the body is really good at sending those signals back uh, to the brain to say, hey, you just ex expended a lot of calories and I want those back. Uh, so exercise by itself will increase appetite. Uh, and there have been studies where they've done this in a, a supervised form, um, having people on a treadmill at certain um, uh, speeds for a certain amount of time. And, and there's a differential response where some people actually gain weight as they start doing more exercise. So bear that in mind with patients who uh, potentially the only thing they want to do is, is exercise. Um, Another thing that I always find interesting, there was a study that was uh, published uh, quite a while ago, but it was looking at a lot of people who were very successful, so with lifestyle changes alone, at losing 30 pounds and then keeping it off. Uh, and they surveyed them and said, well, how did you do it? And 1% <laughs> of this group of people did it by exercise alone. So I think realistically, uh, you, could, you could tell your patients, well, uh, you have a 1% chance uh, of doing this with exercise. Um, so I have a couple of points on here about motivational interviewing, and this is something that um, it can be useful for uh, a multitude of different things. So this was actually initially uh, developed to help treat addictive behaviors. Um, part of what it is is it's a little bit different uh, than a typical uh, kind of history uh, taking and then counseling patients. So it's, it's focusing on the, the patient's uh, experience and what they actually take away from um, behaviors that they have made. So. A lot of times I'll, I'll give people these goals um, and I, I keep it general, say we're going to start doing this with your diet, you're going to do this activity. When they come back the next month, we do a little bit of an inventory and say, well, so what seems to be working well for you? Uh, as opposed to you know, me asking them straight off, hey, did you do all that exercise I told you to do? So it gives them a bit of time to, to reflect on what has helped and then as the practitioner, it's good to then reflect back to them and say, okay, well, that's great. Well, let's work on improving on how many minutes you were doing this or that. Um, so, uh, so taking it from the patient uh, and reflecting back to them. Uh, so these are, again, I, I use a couple of examples here. Um, so what have you been, or what have you found to be helpful so far? It could be keeping a journal, engaging with friends. Um, how many days have you been able to add in activity? And as they're able to tell you that, you can again uh, reflect back and then say, all right, well, let's work on how many more days you can do that. Um, the other things too, so to keep it out of just a strictly, is it all about weight loss? And, and maybe that first month they didn't see a lot of weight loss, they didn't see what they expected, but hey, are you noticing any difference in terms of just, are you sleeping better? Do you have better energy? Um, these kind of health outcomes that are, are truly beneficial from exercise all by itself.
All right. So that's a rundown of how do we get patients started with lifestyle therapies, or I'm sorry, lifestyle changes, uh, and incorporating some of those things in those follow-up visits. Uh, so let's get into the medications here a little bit more in depth. Um, so the Endo Society guidelines, these were published in 2015, and, and these still hold as the best guidelines out there when it comes to uh, the use of medications. Uh, a very important statement that they make at the beginning, uh, and I think this holds up in clinical practice, is that the medications are not going to work in a vacuum. So they're not the only thing that the patient should be trying to use uh, for weight loss. Uh, and again, we've already talked about those comprehensive measures. So, um, Who is a candidate for medication? So pe people with a BMI of greater than 27 who have a comorbid condition, and some of those are listed below. Uh, and then we have patients who have a BMI of greater than 30 with no comorbid, comorbid conditions. They would be considered candidates for medication. They should have had prior unsuccessful attempts at weight loss, or they could be successful at losing weight, but having a hard time maintaining it. Uh, and I would, I would wager that you will find maybe one in 100 people <laughs> who come to you and actually are interested in, in help with weight loss who have not fulfilled that criteria. Uh, it's very common that people have tried everything under the sun uh, and they've not maintained a, a successful weight loss or achieved the weight that they wanted to. So, uh, so even though that's there, I don't think it's, uh, it's not going to be hard to find. Um, the other thing, and this is this last bullet point here about what the guidelines state, the, the medications, what really they do help out with is amplifying or adherence to this lifestyle change. And um, when I first read through these guidelines and they made this statement, I said, well, that kind of strikes me as well. It's, it's justifying the use of the medicine. But in clinical practice, I believe this to be 100% true because I hear it day in and day out. Um, the other thing is that with the medicines, when they do help with that first bit of weight loss, and we already talked about how um, exercise is an important component to this. Uh, getting some weight loss will help them to exercise more. So uh, realizing that exercise is not going to be for everybody right out of the gate, uh, but over time they may be able to improve on that um, with the help of the medications. So uh, we heard about some of the history of medicines that have been developed uh, for use of weight management over the years. Um, and Phentermine is still around. It was one of those originals uh, actually developed in the 1950s, and this trial comes from 1968, uh, so quite a historical study at this point. But what this study is pointing out is that there is a similar response to patients who were given a continuous um, treatment, and that is uh, indicated in the, not the upper lines, but those two overlapping lines, uh, the closed, um, closed circle. Uh, so those people are on medication for nine months continuously, and then you have an open circle where they were on alternating on medicine and then on a placebo every other month for the same period of time. And as you can see, they basically achieved the same weight loss. So ever since then, phentermine has been prescribed as an intermittent therapy. Uh, in the state of Ohio, what that means is it's a three months on the medicine, or you get three months to prescribe the medicine, and then six months off, which is a total of nine months. And so when we talk about using this medicine or what I try to counsel patients on is that three months is not usually long enough uh, to really see meaningful weight loss and then what happens when you stop using the medicine uh, is that they're going to see some return of appetite and without really meaningful or, or keeping those lifestyle changes they're likely to regain weight. So phentermine I would say has um, it is effective but it has limited uh, long-term use and, and clearly it's only approved for short-term use. Um, you do have to be careful about several side effects or several 
conditions not to prescribe this medicine. So people who have a history of cardiac disease, in particular arrhythmias or uncontrolled hypertension, um, uncontrolled or untreated hyperthyroidism is another contraindication. Um, and then you have to be very careful of use in patients who have glaucoma or they're taking other medicines that are MAOIs because the MAOI uh, is needed, uh, I'm sorry, will increase the, uh, the efficacy of fentermine. So moving to medicines now that are actually approved for long-term use, so everything else we'll talk about um, can be taken continuously. Um, Orlistat is, is also an older medicine, not quite as old as fentermine. Um, it has a different um, uh, use, so this is the only medicine that's not an appetite uh, suppressant in, in this group of medicines. It's a pancreatic lipase inhibitor, and its role is to reduce absorption of dietary fats. Um, so this medicine is required to be taken with meals. It's a three times a day then dosing, and there are two different do doses available, either as prescription, uh, and that's the brand name Zenical, or over-the-counter as Ally. Um, the studies aren't tremendous in terms of how much weight people lose, and this is in comparison to the placebo, um, so a 3% differential in terms of people on treatment versus not. Um, it has been studied in people with diabetes, and, and with that weight loss, it does uh, have some improvement in A1C as well, but again, it's modest. Um, it is approved, uh, again, for long-term use. The one thing that is a major drawback for this is the GI side effects, uh, really coming from lack of dietary fat absorption. It leads to just kind of uh, increased transit in the gut. Um, so with that also, the, the blockage of fat absorption will lead to blockage of fat-soluble vitamins as well. So some people who potentially are on things like warfarin, you have to be careful of use. Um, but this can be a good medicine for people who have essentially contraindications to everything else or if they're a very high-risk uh, cardiac patient because it doesn't have any stimulant effect uh, on that side. So if you remember back to one of those earlier slides uh, during the introduction, Lorcasrin was approved in 2012, but unfortunately this one was withdrawn from the market uh, at the very beginning of 2020. Uh, Lorcasrin was originally uh, manufactured as a serotonin agent, which is similar to that fenfluramine, so somewhat of a, a rough history for the serotonin agents. Um, it was meant, though, to focus in on a specific receptor and avoid the things that were causing uh, those cardiac uh, heart valve thickening. Uh, unfortunately, so it, there was a cardiovascular outcome study uh, that was performed um, that included about 6,000 patients, and, and what they, they saw uh, was a small but uh, a, a concerning uh, difference in terms of patients who were on treatment versus those on placebo, uh, increased incidence of cancers in those patients. Uh, this was monitored for several more months, and as that rate was increasing over time, uh, that's where the FDA made the uh, determination to uh, remove this from the market. So, so we won't spend any more time talking about larcasserine, but um, important to know. So. Uh, fentermine and topiramate, this medicine was approved um, the, under the brand name Qsimia. This was approved in 2012, so about the same time as Lorcasserin. Uh, again, this is a combination of two older medicines, um, so very well known in terms of side effects and long-term effects. This medicine is approved for long-term use. Uh, that combination therapy, as I was mentioning earlier, we have those two different neurons that help to control appetite. Uh, that do have interplay between each other. And so what this medicine is actually doing is helping to address some of those uh, differential uh, inputs on appetite by hitting two different receptors in the central nervous system. Uh, in the graphic here, we've got uh, what looks like a 
dark blue and a, uh, a red bar. So the red bar uh, are patients who have lost 10%, and then the, the dark blue is a 5% weight loss. Um, so in the lower dose of fentramine and topiramate, about 60% of participants lost that 5%, and up to about 70% uh, on the higher dose. And so as you can see, there's a step up in the 10% weight loss as well. So I think in terms of a, a once-a-day medication, uh, this one can be quite effective and it's pretty well tolerated, um, but we'll keep in mind those percent weight losses here. So we're talking 5%, uh, 60 to 70% of the patients included in their clinical trial. Um, so the prescribing of this is a little bit uh, nuanced. Generally, you start with the very low dose, and so that's listed in the top box here. Uh, it's a 3.75 fentramine and 23 uh, milligram topiramate combination. Uh, that's taken for two weeks and then followed up by three months of that 7.5 slash 46 milligram dose. At the end of the three months, if the person has achieved at least 3% weight loss and they're tolerating the medicine, then it's considered uh, efficacious and they can continue. Uh, if they have not met that, that standard, the 3%, then they're supposed to step up the dose uh, for another three months and then try to achieve at least 5% weight loss. And if not, then they should taper off this medicine. Really what that's getting to is, is the medicine helping uh, in a way that we mean it to. So not just it's helping with appetite, but they're not losing much weight. Um, again, there, there are some things to be cautious with here. So patients, again, similar contraindications to fentramine by itself. Uh, topiramate does have a risk of kidney stones, so that's an added risk with this medicine. And topiramate also is teratogenic. It's known to cause cleft lip defects. So uh, women, particularly taking this medicine of childbearing age, they need to be screened, have a negative pregnancy test before starting on it. Um, and then moving forward, uh, they should be obviously uh, trying to prevent pregnancy, but uh, the guidelines state they should be doing a home pregnancy test, um, although that's not necessarily something you can <laughs> uh, monitor from the clinic. There is a renal adjustment in the dose. If somebody has um, uh, decreased GFR, they should not go above that 7.5, 46-milligram dose. So another oral combination uh, medicine, bupropion and naltrexone, um, this is an interesting, slightly different uh, effect on the central nervous system. So bupropion has a little bit of a, a stimulant in, impact. So it has an SNRI quality to it, and it can then increase that norepinephrine effect slightly. Um, it has an effect on dopamine as well, and dopamine is a, a reward neurotransmitter. And so as I talk to patients about this, uh, really what this medicine is, is more having an impact on is cravings uh, with that bupropion effect. Naltrexone, uh, is an opioid receptor blocker, and what it's meant to do is actually help maintain the effect of that POMC neuron. So POMC, uh, it will produce something called alpha-MSH, which stimulates a melanocortin receptor and helps reduce appetite. At the same time, it produces an endorphin, which will feed back and shut off uh, the production of that alpha-MSH. And so what naltrexone is doing is blocking that negative feedback. Uh, what I run into a lot of times with patients on this medicine is that there's kind of a buildup in the dose and there's a buildup in potential side effects or intolerances. Um, a lot of people complain about things like headaches or nausea, insomnia, uh, increase in anxiety potentially. And so a lot of times that's due to the bupropion effect. And then some people will actually kind of give me this vague statement of they just don't feel n normal or they don't like how they feel on the medicine, uh, which I kind of assign to the naltrexone part of it because it is having this general opioid blocking effect. Um, the graph here is meant to show that there is a differential response, and this was from their clinical study uh, that got approval for this medicine, 
uh, the red bar being all patients included in the trial, and then the green bar being the patients who continued on the medicine. So there was a fair number of patients in this trial that stopped the medication because of those intolerances, but the people who could tolerate it actually did a, a, a decent job in terms of weight loss. Um, again, that 5% weight loss in this group uh, of the folks who tolerated it better was about 60%, so similar to the fentramine topiramate combination. Uh, the 10% weight loss, not quite as good at that uh, 30%. So um, you do have to be cautious with this medicine. Anybody who has a history of seizures, clearly with bupropion, uh, it would not be appropriate. Um, substance use is interesting. So alcohol, uh, if they are a kind of chronic but intermittent user, that could also increase their risk of seizures. And then opioid use um, obviously would be uh, blocked by naltrexone. Um, some of the other things, more behavioral, anorexia or bulimia, um, uncontrolled hypertension because of that SNRI effect, and again, glaucoma and the MAOI. So now switching over a little bit into the, um, the GLP-1 category of medications here. So loraglutide was actually approved, I want to say 2015, 16, somewhere at the end of 2015. Uh, loraglutide is known as Saxenda when we're talking weight management. It's also approved for diabetes under the name Victoza. So this medicine has been around quite a while at this point. Um, the way that the GLP-1s differ a little bit from uh, what we've just talked about is they have an effect on the, the gut itself, but also a central effect uh, on reducing appetite. So a lot of what people will notice with this uh, because of that gut slowing effect is that they can't eat as much once they've started on this medicine. So it has a way of kind of controlling portions all on its own. Um, as you step up the dose on this, and uh, as mentioned here, it starts at a 0.6 milligram daily dose and each week you step it up by 0.6 until they're at three milligrams and that generally takes about five weeks. Um, once you get up to those higher doses, that's where people are able to tell you, well, yeah, it has a better effect on my appetite. I just don't feel like eating, plus I can't eat as much. Um, so those two uh, inputs together, is, it makes it a pretty effective medicine. Um, there are some things that you have to caution the patients on. I think the most important one is that there is a risk of pancreatitis. It is a small risk. You're talking about one per 1,000 patients taking this. Um, on the labeling, they, they include things like MEN2 and a risk of medullary thyroid cancer, so if there's a family history. Really, that comes from, from rat data, so preclinical data in, uh, in animals, and it's never really been um, replicated in humans, but it, it makes it into the labeling. Um, I do include pregnancy in here, so there is a statement uh, for each of these medicines uh, where pregnancy is, it's not a time where women should be losing weight, so these medicines are all contraindicated in pregnancy. Um, the only one really uh, importantly that I had mentioned already was topiramate and the, the birth defects. So these do not cause birth defects, but it's just important to, to know that these should not be prescribed during pregnancy. So liraglutide is a once-a-day GLP-1 medicine. Semaglutide, which uh, was fairly recent, so we're talking uh, June of 2021, this one actually got approved as a weight loss medicine. Um, semaglutide is given as a weekly injection, so a little bit more convenient for patients, but it's clearly more effective as well. Um, so similar effects, similar side effects. There may be a slightly more pronounced uh, side effect in terms of nausea or diarrhea, constipation with these uh, because of that higher dose that they go up to. Um, the titration is also a little bit different. So it's a weekly dose, but they will still take four doses, so a full month at, at each dose. Uh, and I've listed all the different doses here. Um, the goal is to get up to the 2.4 milligram dose, though there is some you know, leeway if a patient can't tolerate a certain dose, you can kind of back off. 
uh, and try to retitrate, but if they can't go up, they just can't go up. So you kind of use the most effective dose that they're able to tolerate. Um, what we're getting into here, though, as far as the percent weight loss, there's many more <laughs> bars on this graph than most of the other ones because in this clinical trial, there was a certain amount of people who were able to achieve 20% weight loss uh, on this medication. This is a 68-week, uh, which takes into account the four months of titrating the dose and then 52 weeks on the medicine. But if you look at where 50% of the people were able to lose 15% of their, their starting weight, uh, that's a really impactful uh, use of medication for a lot of people. You're, you're seeing uh, tremendous improvements in terms of uh, health outcomes. So same contraindications listed from uh, the prior GLP-1. Now this medication uh, does not have a brand name yet because it's not been approved yet for use in, in weight management. It is currently approved for use uh, in type 2 diabetes, uh, but this is terzepatide. Uh, this data comes from their surmount study, um, and this was a weight loss study, so this medicine is currently being uh, investigated for eventual approval for weight management. Um, this is an interesting medicine because it's actually a dual agent. So what I was just talking about with each of those others uh, in terms of the GLP-1, it was only a GLP-1 receptor agonist. This one also is a GIP receptor agonist. So the, the two of those together, um, clearly by, by the data here, have a slightly better impact when it comes to weight loss. So the, the difference here, if you look again at that 50%, so half of the participants in this study who were on the highest dose and close on the, the 10 milligram dose achieved 20% weight loss. So if, if your patients have come in asking about this medicine, they probably heard this and it is out there on social media. Uh, and it's actually being compared in terms of outcomes, uh, comparing it to bariatric surgery, which I think is a little premature uh, since we haven't seen this in a large population. But looking at this data, when you have 90% of the participants losing 5%, and roughly 80% losing 10% of their, their starting weight. This is truly remarkable when you're talking about a medication uh, to help them lose weight. It does have a little bit more pronounced GI side effects, but they're all similar to the other GLP-1s uh, in terms of um, nausea and vomiting and then diarrhea constipation. Interestingly, in the, the semaglutide in this study, uh, they are looking for pancreatitis and the rates of pancreatitis actually was no different uh, between the patients on the, the medicine versus um, the placebo group. Um, again, I would still counsel patients in the same way. These have all kind of been studied and seen uh, to have that same risk over time. So this table, this I kind of provide this more as a reference point, but it's also to look at these uh, kind of side to side. I'm not going to go through each and every one of these, but if you're looking at, let's say, the last uh, kind of oral options and then the early GLP-1 option being fentermine, topiramate, bupropion, naltrexone, and liraglutide, they all have similar amounts of weight loss. So you're talking low to mid-teens in terms of overall weight loss. Um, and then you get into the weekly uh, GLP-1 semaglutide and then terzepatide, where the weight loss is getting up into the high 20s and then 30 to 40 pounds of weight loss. Uh, and again, that's just, uh, things are advancing and this is very favorable um, data and hopefully uh, we'll see similar results in, in uh, the general population when we're able to. So a couple more points. Uh, again, this comes from the Endo Society guidelines. Now, there are medications that help reduce appetite, and then there are those out there that help Im increase appetite. And of course, if somebody's looking to lose weight uh, or they've kind of progressively gained weight over time, 
uh, it's important that you review all the medicines uh, and not just <laughs> add on something to help with weight loss. But I've highlighted a couple of important ones here. Um, gabapentin, I think, is a very common medicine. It's used a lot of times, uh, so for a lot of patients with diabetes. Uh, and this can have a really potent appetite-increasing effect. Uh, the other one that is uh, used quite a bit, I think, is, is glucocorticoids. They have a lot of different uses. Uh, I think it's just it's wise to counsel patients um, when starting these for whatever the purpose may be, uh, that they should uh, be aware and then also kind of come back to you uh, if they are noticing significant weight gain, and then you, you should probably uh, consider if that's the right therapy for them. Um, in the, the diabetes realm, a lot of the older medicines, the sulfonylureas, TZDs, the glenides, those are all known to cause weight gain, and really that is through insulin, and insulin itself is known to cause weight gain. Um, so trying to use these newer medicines, the GLP-1s, SGLT-2s, to moderate uh, weight gain and diabetes, and, and clearly that has its own impact uh, in terms of glucose improvement. Um, and I've got listed here some things, the antidepressants and blood pressure medicines, so there are better options there as well. I had mentioned this earlier when we were talking about fentramine. So fentramine is the only short-term medicine, and really uh, fentramine all by itself or in combination with fentramine and topiramate. Uh, these are considered Schedule Four medicines, so they are controlled, and they do have specific laws uh, regulating their use. Um, uh, again, I mentioned fentramine. You can only prescribe it for three months, and fentramine and topiramate uh, can be prescribed continuously, but for those first three months, the patients do need to be seen face-to-face uh, and they need to be assessed in the same way for tolerance and um, efficacy of the medicine. So not just uh, for that 3% are they meeting the goal, but also for state uh, regulations. You want to make sure you're, you're following these. The pharmacies definitely do, uh, and if you step outside of them, they, <laughs> they will let you know, and the patients uh, a lot of times will not be prescribed or not uh, have their medicine dispensed um, anyhow. So. All right, so I've got just a couple of uh, slides on non-pharmacological therapy, and, and the use of these is somewhat limited. I think, so for the intragastric balloons, uh, it's important to know that they're only approved for BMIs between 30 and 40. Uh, each of these has been studied uh, for about a six-month period of time, and then they're followed out to about a year uh, to see how much weight loss is sustained at that point. So the two top-named balloons here, Orbera and Reshape, uh, their studies on average, we're somewhere in the 7% weight loss. Uh, so at that 12-month mark, uh, you can see that in the reshape data. In the Orbera, it was 14% versus 4.8% at the placebo. But at a year, the 14% really dropped down to about 7%. So what you're looking at with the balloons, on average, is about a 7% weight loss over the first year. And if we're talking about that in comparison to medications, uh, you're talking about a slightly riskier uh, and somewhat costlier, although it depends on the medicine uh, option. So, again, the contraindications to using a balloon would be patients who have a history of severe reflux with esophagitis, anybody on a blood thinner, anybody who's had bariatric surgery previously. Uh, the common side effects, and this kind of makes sense, you've got a space-occupying thing in the stomach. They get a lot of nausea and vomiting. Usually that's for the first couple of weeks, and then the stomach uh, will somewhat adjust to having the balloon in there. Uh, there are some rare side effects, gastric ulcers. Um, if, if the balloon uh, deflates and, and migrates, you can have duodenal blockage, and then pancreatitis is known to happen as well. Uh, so this, this device, the duodenal jejunal bypass sleeve, uh, endo sleeve is another name that this goes by, uh, 
This is a device that's placed endoscopically, and it, it's placed at the outlet of the stomach with this sleeve that then uh, kind of dispenses through the duodenum. It's meant to mimic the gastric sleeve or gastric bypass in terms of uh, the physiology of bypassing that, that portion of the stomach, so nutrients are not absorbed there. Um, it's been studied and, and has probably the most pronounced effect on decreasing A1C. So in patients with diabetes, this can be a rather effective medicine. Um, it's not approved for uh, outside of investigational use, so this is not an FDA-approved device. And some of this is because of some of the side effects, and some of the side effects can be um, similar to the balloon, pain, nausea, vomiting, uh, potential for migration. But rare, important side effects, cholangitis, liver abscesses, these are the things that have kept it from getting FDA-approved. The last one I'm going to mention as far as a device is this aspiration therapy, and this is something that we don't have at OSU. It is FDA approved, and this can be uh, used in patients with a BMI of 35 to 55. Uh, it's an endoscopically placed gastrostomy tube, uh, and then there's a device that actually will instill water and then remove a certain amount of that, uh, and the patients are meant to use this after eating. Uh, so really what it's doing is removing a certain amount of calories after a meal. Um, again, it does have some pretty impressive weight loss um, over periods of time, uh, and the weight loss does seem to be um, sustained in the patients who have used this. Again, I don't have any patients who've used this, so uh, purely this is from my reading of studies uh, in terms of information here. So, all right, so to go over those, those important take-home points, again, coming back to the fact that weight loss is not something that's going to happen quickly. Uh, it's important to start that discussion with patients and let them know that this is going to be a long-term process, and typically you get the best results if you have a multidisciplinary approach. Uh, lifestyle modification, again, is the basis for successful weight loss, and ideally that they're going to maintain that after any intervention as well. And again, we went over some of these medications, and, and we're seeing some medications that are starting to have very meaningful weight loss for patients. Uh, in each of those clinical studies, those were in the setting of a low-calorie diet and increased exercise. So again, medicines are helpful, but they're not going to work outside of those lifestyle changes. Um, I mentioned a couple of those non-surgical options, uh, some that are approved, some that are not yet approved. Uh, and then we've got bariatric surgery as our last kind of most intensive option, uh, which does have, again, still the best in terms of results and maintaining that weight loss over time. Thank you so much, Ben. That was a fantastic overview. Now, um, I, I have a million questions. We won't have time for all of them. But um, if you wouldn't mind going through a little bit of specifics on a few things. So, you know, I understand diet exercise always number one for these patients. But are there a specific patient type that you would consider an ideal candidate for starting medications versus some of those other interventions like bariatric surgery or an endoscopic option? Yeah, I think probably looking for um, patients a little bit earlier on, so let's say in the BMI categories, that class one, class two BMI, um, the, the medicines are probably gonna have a better effect there because again, we're, we do have some limitations in terms of how much weight they can lose. Mm -hmm. Once you get into the, the BMIs, say 40, 45 and higher, they're probably gonna need a more intensive therapy, uh, in particular surgery. Um, I mentioned you know, some of that has to do with the patient's just ability to increase exercise. Um, as that BMI goes up, they likely have more joint disease and things like that. It's going to limit them from exercising. Mm -hmm. And then when you are treating patients, what is your goal? Is it trying to get them to a normal BMI? Or, um, I mean, you mentioned some of these meds only produce a 3, three to 5% weight loss, which seems awfully low for someone who's trying to lose 100 pounds. Right. I do think that 
setting the stage or at least asking the patient about what their goal might be. Um, some people, they do have a number in mind, which that makes it a little bit trickier. Um, but I think starting out, achieving at least a 5%, 10% weight loss, uh, especially if you're using one of the medications, that's a very reasonable goal. Uh, and that's where they're really going to start seeing some of that improvement in other things, blood pressure, diabetes control. Yeah, that's definitely a good outcome. And how long do you typically keep patients on meds? I mean, um, are these expected to be lifelong therapies? So I'd say that's a, that's, a, uh, that's a difficult question to answer. It's not a black and white issue. So some patients, um, they will benefit from being on the medicine for six months, some will be 12 months. Um, I have a handful of patients who've been on medications now for several years, which help them lose a significant amount of weight, but then also maintain that weight, which in the past without the medicine, they would have very quickly regained most of the weight that they lost. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, a lot of people have tried a lot of things, so they're very grateful when, when something works. Now, speaking of what works, can you stack medications? Like in diabetes, we can, if one medication doesn't control the A1C, we add another one. Can we start someone on, let's say, bupropion naltrexone, and then add semaglutide? So again, this is another question that I think is a, it's a gray area. Um, I do think clearly there is benefit to multiple uh, medicines trying to help impact somebody's appetite. Uh, currently, the guidelines do state you really should use them as a single agent, um, and a lot of times that also comes into uh, play when it comes to cost. So mm -hmm. a lot of these medicines are somewhat costly, and it's difficult for a person to afford sometimes just one of them, and trying to add a second one is probably not going to be financially feasible. Mm -hmm. Which brings me to my next, qu next question, which is about cost. I mean, that's a huge barrier. A lot of these are brand-name medications, thousands of dollars sometimes. Do you sometimes use generic medications off-label? For example, some of the single agents that are within the combo meds that are approved for weight loss, such as bupropion or topiramate? Sure, so sometimes I'll do that, and especially if it's a, uh, a person who is uh, very limited in terms of how much they can spend on a medicine every month. Um, if I'm gonna do that, I do tell the people uh, you got to be upfront and say this medicine has not been approved for this use, but mm -hmm. because it is in some of these combination medicines, topiramate, for example, um, it, it's pretty clear that for a lot of people it will change the flavor of certain things. Um, it does have this impact on appetite, but all by itself, I don't find it as effective as combination therapy. Mm -hmm. um, but if it is our one true option we can use, uh, it, for some people it's better to try it uh, than just say, well, we don't have any other options. Mm -hmm. That's helpful, especially like you said, people who don't have those insurance options. Um, thank you so much for going through all that. I feel now much more confident in treating my patients with obesity using these um, awesome new medications, it seems. Well, we're gonna finish up today's program with final key point. Ben? Thanks, Jingjing. So having this discussion with patients uh, sometimes can be difficult. Uh, it's one of the things though that I think is important to realize there are a lot of medical conditions that uh, are treated and screened for uh, each day in a, a primary care setting. Uh, but when the patient comes in ready to talk about weight loss, uh, I think it's really important that their doctor is as well. So hopefully this will help you to feel confident uh, in having that discussion. Thanks for joining us today. Next week, my guest, Dr. Priya Dedia will be here to discuss thyroid and parathyroid tumors. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.